Not sure if the path of your parents is the path for you? What questions do you begin with? What does self-discovery feel like? My journey of self-discovery has been both my privilege and my tribulation. I have lived life differently than most. I offer educational sessions on how to pursue your path. Links and contacts are in the bios. Welcome to the Sex and Humans podcast, Easter egg episode of High with Jordy. Jordan Robinson is a creative producer at his own music label, a visual artist, a burner, traveled over 80 countries, and is now focused on startups in the immersive entertainment world. He has three passports, speaks two languages, and has a wide, diverse array of interests and experiences, which have led to a deep amount of personal work on himself. He certainly knows who he is and how he got there. Jordan and I met in Los Angeles a few years ago, and through our eclectic journeys, have ended up in Lisbon, Portugal, for the foreseeable future at the same time. Welcome, Jordan. How are you? Thanks for having me, John David. Good to be here in the same city. In the same city, right? <laughs> uh, how those Instagram follows and just like, hey, man, you seem interesting, turns into something more. I, I think that's happened to me a couple of times in my life, not often, but a few. And to me, that that is where the the value of those social media sites really kind of plays out, right? It's like they're not irrelevant to our modern world. I just think they're heavily abused. But I think in this context, this is exactly what they're there for, right? Because if we just exchanged numbers, which I think we did as well, but just numbers, like there's no reason I would have reached out to you and said, hey, man, I'm moving to Lisbon. Right. No way. It was the right. No way. And you, maybe at some point, you know, maybe at some point we ran into each other or, you know, through a mutual friend that might have happened. But again, mm -hmm. that's also really coincidental. Whereas I think it was I posted on Instagram like, hey, I'm moving to Lisbon for the foreseeable future. And you were like, that's amazing. So am I. And then there, there it all began. So I, I, I love the way that that worked out for us. Um, Me too. And uh the, the the adventures will continue. <laughs> they will. Uh, so with this, you know, like uh, well, one of the many things that Jordan and I have in common is the, the growth that we've done and, and the conclusions that we've made about ourselves uh, and how we're living our life and why we're living our life the way we are. But I kind of want to hear from you, man. Like, uh, what is your definition of masculinity specifically more for you less in a cultural context just like what is it for you i'll preface this by saying i'm still a work in progress from a masculinity femininity sure. perspective including other facets of myself but for me i've really connected with my masculinity in the last five years more more than i have in the 30 years preceding that and that has been my own transition into being very happy with being a man, very comfortable with how I present and very connected to how it informs my identity because I grew up in a very hyper-masculine environment in Australia, which was sure. really focused on playing sports, really focused on uh, traditional nuclear family dynamics. And that's, what I learned to understand and what I learned to be uh, the case. Uh, and then as my life progressed and I traveled more and more, I saw different presentations of that. Even traveling at a really young age to some of the Pacific Islands where in traditional cultures there's a third gender who is a man who is also a caregiver. 
who embodies the feminine. Hmm. And seeing that as a young age really opened my eyes to my current stance on masculinity to answer your question, which is it's really dynamic and situational, but it runs along a spectrum for me. And that spectrum can be something from being strong and dominant and assured, which is a very masculine trait, all the way down to being more empathetic, gentle and caring, which arguably is a feminine trait. And I've found in the different situations I find myself in my life, be it relationships, be it work, be it creating art, from music to visual art, being able to transcend and navigate across those spectrums within a confined container that I feel is aligned to my values and who I am has been a real source of power for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean power in an egotistical or controlling sense. I mean power in a enabling sense in the, let me give you a tangible example, uh, in relationship, for example, um, I now find it very easily easy with the right person to become vulnerable and to connect at a more authentic, deep level. Whereas before I would have viewed that as a very feminine trait and I found that quite hard to do. So now being able to move between these spectrums and understand that by being in my masculine, it allows, if my partner's a female, her to be comfortable and herself in her feminine, that to me is powerful. Or mm -hmm. in the converse, if I have a friendship with male friend, for example, if we're using a binary definition of gender or, or masculinity femininity here, um, and they're going through a tough time, I can soften and I can come around and I can cook for them and I can say, hey, I'm here for you. And, um, mm -hmm. and let's talk. I'm here to listen. And, you know, my personal understanding of that has only evolved in the last five years. If you'd asked me this question even five years ago, six years ago, I would have had a much more almost toxically alpha leaning towards my own masculinity. I was a university boxer. I played a lot of sports. I often really struggled to present as a very hyper-masculine male because it actually wasn't in my nature. That creativity, that femininity um, really lives within me and it was something I ignored. So that's where I am at the moment. In the next five years, if you ask me the same question, yeah, who knows change. where I'll be. But I think that, you know, how have you found that yourself in that traversing of masculine and feminine? Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, for sure. This, this experience that we're all having, you know, is human. I think the masculine and the feminine are failure linguistic relationships between male, female, yeah. between you know, for sexuality, right? Uh, you know, we often describe someone's sexuality using those terms. And that's, mm -hmm. I think just, what you're actually describing has nothing to do with sexuality or biological sex and gender. Um, I think, I think that masculinity and femininity at their most boiled down are ways of thought, ways of processing information that from the external world 
internally and then deciding how you're going to regurgitate or respond or react to that those stimuli back into the world right so how do you look how do you dress how do you behave where do you show up for people and i think our culture in the west and, and this is this whole kind of podcast is kind of for the west or you know if you're in the east and you're you're attracted to it but i think the the growth of culture in the far east the middle east india are are very very different and so i think eventually they're going to get to these places as well to have these conversations but the path they're going to get there is going to be different than the path of you know the west and i think that for us you know we're we're just to be humble about it though like ahead of the curve i, I think that human being and and through either trauma challenging situations right this and that right you kind of forced to get to the the bottom of something right because you were you were there and there was nowhere else to go so as you move forward you having the the kind of sense to say i don't want to i don't want to continue to move through the world in the way that got me here yeah right and and in some ways for me it was because like i don't know if i could have could survive going to that place again so it's it was it really was this interesting you know survival mode reaction but instead of just pure reacting to to that i i i was able to in part due to some luck and privilege and the ability to have the time and the space to do that but to be able to say i want to respond to this so that i can understand how well-intentioned behavior got me here and decisions right regardless of the external factors of, of what also pushed me there but you know i i allowed for those things to happen um to a certain extent to me i i, I made choices that i could have made other choices Hmm. And to, to me, that that has really led me to understanding how we make choices. And that led me to this conclusion about, okay, so when you're in the masculine, the feminine, like, and it's not just good enough to be able to access both. Part of that is, and this, this was where I, I felt like I could access both prior to some things happening to me. And that made me feel confident and kind of strong and probably a little arrogant about what yeah. i could handle and how i moved to the world because i felt very good and like and I, I felt like i was already kind of beyond this toxic masculine form yeah. and i was like i'm good i'm here and then i still ended up in this weird spot and i was a little confused at how i got there and so then i started to examine it and i realized that Part of it was I was using old mentalities of you know, how I was brought up, of what masculinity and femininity were, and that's how I was applying those decision-making trees, right? So I was coming at a decision that I probably should have used either more masculine or feminine thought processes, and I was just doing whatever, right? I wasn't really putting a lot of thought into what's the best way to handle this. 
right? Um, and I think often I would use my feelings to guide me. And I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of that, like new age culture. Like I was like, hey, what feels good to me? Yeah. And then I would do that because that was kind of what we were being taught that, that was correct. Like, how does it feel to you? If it feels good, trust your gut. I have now learned that's not always appropriate. And oftentimes the way we feel about something is based on a challenge or a trauma or, uh, or, or something that happened to us that at some point made us feel normal, but now mm. is really bad for us, right? I mean, you see that that's the, I think, you know, the, the most easy explanation for that is when you have childhood trauma and, you know, you marry your mom or your whomever, and then you wonder why it's not working out. And it's because that person who you married made you feel like home. But as an adult, home's not a real great place for you. Because being a kid, it may, may or may not have been a great, healthy place for you. Not to disparage the parents that, you know, sacrificed a lot to raise us. But like, you know, we had some things that didn't go on that were great, that weren't great. And you recreate those when you find that feeling again. And that's was very, very confusing to me. So that was mm. kind of my path towards understanding my current understanding. And I, and I, I, uh, I asterisks that as you do, you know, ask yeah. in five years and I'll tell you what I think then. But, um, you know, at this point, that's, that's what I think. I, I think it's this, this decision-making tree and I'm trying to learn to be more specific about it. Um, and less uh, egotistical about it. Yeah. To the I point what, where it's... Go ahead. I was just going to say, what you're talking about really does relate. It's almost a microcosm of an overall spiritual or healing journey. And what I mean by that is what you're talking about was us operating automatically, right, based on what we believe to be true or what felt good or our patterns or traumas or behaviors automatically operating whether it's in a masculine feminine right. context or another context, but as we uh, had hardships and had joys and had learnings, we then move from an automatic space to one of a much more conscious space, which is, well, hang on, what tools do I have at my disposal? What understanding do I have? What data do I have from before? And how do I navigate this situation now with a much more self-aware and conscious mindset? And so I feel like that's just such a applicable dynamic to so many situations mm -hmm. that I see at work, in my life, in my friends' lives, in relationships. It's moving from automatic or unconscious to a much more conscious place, which really only comes from pain, usually, or, or hardship. Um, otherwise, it's just easy to be automatic and do, and do what feels good. Yeah. Well, and the, the trouble is, is if, if, if that is your pursuit and you're good at it, eventually it's going to break down um, yep. and it's just not going to work. Um, and when that happens, you, you inevitably are going to question how you got to a certain place. Exactly. Yeah. You know? uh, and that it's, it's in those questions. I think part of the, the, the goal of being a human, and this is a much more 
you talk about spiritual, the spiritual side of things. You know, I think everything is real if it exists. And that sounds obvious, but like if there's a spirit to human beings, then it's real. It's not, it's not mythic. It's not imaginary. It's biological. It's got a molecular makeup uh, or a particle makeup. It's something. And just because we can't see it and measure it is completely irrelevant. It Absolutely. does exist with something. And therefore, that energy or particle beam or whatever it is that lives, that's part of us, that, that is that difference between you and me right now is alive. And that microsecond when we finally aren't and mm. everything changes. There's something that, that does, quote unquote, leave us. and. I think spiritually, part of that goal and maybe part of the thing that develops the spirit is forgiveness, that act, whether that just be a, a biochemical link, which is coincidental. Like when, when you have to go through that process of forgiveness, the physical changes that happen to your body, the way your brain is thinking, the way your brain is processing information, the way the neurons are connecting, aligns to a point which enhances the ability to make that energy or that soul stronger. And mm. that is the design for like how we get to wherever else we're going, if we're going anywhere at all. And as a, as a conscious creature, and Forgiveness requires suffering. So I don't know that it is the suffering that makes us stronger. It's the forgiveness to the suffering that makes us stronger, which is why it's so part of the human experience. I mean, no matter what we do, no matter how wealthy we are, no matter what our circumstances are, we human beings find ways to fucking suffer. And the why is that? <laughs> right? Like, why is that? Like, that, like, what is going on? Why can't we reach a state of like bliss? And then we're all like, yeah, man. Like, I have food. I have friends. I have this. I, it's beautiful. Like, I have no suffering. No, we seek it out. We find it. We we will find suffering. And to be able to begin to choose your suffering based on the choices that you can make and how you make choices, I, th I think is, is different. And, you know, a friend of mine is traveling and I'm going to meet them later this, this month, the benefits of living here. Uh, and they're traveling and they lost their passport in the, in the airport, just somehow put it down and it's gone. And then there's the drama, the suffering that comes from that going to the embassy, having to get an emergency passport, their flights are canceled, having to book a new flight, no credit for the flight that got, you know, all these little things, all these little things. Um, and that kind of suffering, how she's able to handle that it can be a lesson in forgiveness, even if it's just to herself or if it's to the person that stole her passport, right? when they had the opportunity, if that's what happened, right? It's, 
these little moments that you can use rather than just react. And my theory going forward, even though I'm, I'm new in this, this, this very conscious, very actively aware state is that, you know, if you can get enough forgiveness and, and, and lessons from things that happen to you, like shit happens, you lose your passport at the airport and how you can deal with that situation, mm. then maybe that's one of the ways to start avoiding the really big ones that you know we're, we need at some point because that's that's how our culture is set up right it, it's designed to be conflicting with someone or something but you know being able to choose those conflicts a little bit more intentionally maybe is a way to avoid disaster again you know to yeah your point. it's also this forgiveness is a good lens because it's also suffering is inevitable but it's really about how quickly or how intentionally can you let go or forgive of that particular suffering to propel yourself forward and as you said strengthen your soul essentially and you know if i think about the times in my life where i've suffered the most the first time i suffered the most i held on for the longest and each time after i suffered I, I forgave more quickly or I held on less time. And each time I propelled even higher and more and further and strengthened. It's almost like the physics of the universe in that you will continue to go and ascend higher, not to use a cliched term, um, but almost to go upwards, you have to create some sort of negative force to propel further. You need some sort of propulsion, some sort of um, mm -hmm. slingshot effect to be able to progress forward in your life. And to your point, it's always gonna happen. There's always gonna be things that you're gonna to have to forgive or let go of, but it's mm -hmm. what are those things? And can you have a conscious choice in what they are? Yes, it's hard, but yes. And two, how do you let them impact you or affect you? Feel what you need to feel, practice acceptance, and then forgive. And how long does it take you to do that? You know, Does it take minutes in the airport? You calm down, you're okay. Does it take hours? You're flustered for a while. Does it take days? You're pissed off for days, you ruin your holiday. Does it take weeks? Does it take right. months? You don't travel for months. There's really an interesting, um, I don't know if it's a theory, but thought in there around the duality or ne necessity of suffering and letting go of forgiveness as a mechanism to propel yourself forwards in your life and I'm in uh, the best place I've ever been in my life at this moment, sitting mm -hmm. in this chair. <laughs> and I'm sure that a lot of suffering is ahead of me because I'm a human being, but I would like to think, <laughs> we'll see, I'll let you know on the next podcast. I'd like to think that if the next time we speak, I'm telling you, hey man, I'm not doing so great. I'd like to think that because of all that suffering, holding on, letting go, propelling forward, ascending, becoming more conscious. I'm going to handle it like a champ, <laughs> but we'll mm -hmm. let you know how it goes. Yeah. Well, I think suffering is not sadness, right? I think suffering is to your point, the holding on beyond the need to do that. Mm -hmm. If something were to, if something were to happen to you, you lose a parent, you, you know, something right. happens to your friend, like, I think some of the, the, the 
understanding of, of, oh, you let go of the suffering is like you walk in and be like super fine with it, you know, and you're like, oh, you're not upset. No, no, no. I've transcended my reality. This is no longer <laughs> like now you're just a dick um, who's just, <laughs> just got some sort avoiding of avoiding feelings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not that's, you know, you, 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 be you must sad feel for as, yeah. right. As long as you need to be sad or be upset. Mm -hmm. But the suffering element, you know, is the needless reliving of the experience beyond where you need um because you're you you don't want to acknowledge the truth of what's happened and um and i so i think to your point so you might you might have a moment where you're like Man, i'm not doing so good like this has happened and this has happened and like this thing it's it's really difficult and I, I, i've I've got a lot of choices to make and I got to navigate all these choices and those choices are going to have consequences. And there's really no great choice where I don't have to deal with some sort of significant negative consequence, i.e., you know, I got to break up with somebody or I got to leave my job or my job has left me and now I have to reevaluate how I spend money and maybe this, all these different decision making trees. But again, that's how I started to learn to understand what masculinity and femininity are and applying which one is most effective. And I, I think both genders can do that. I just think they show up a little bit differently at best on average on the genders, but it's also not, not firm. I think we valued it showing up in the genders hmm. culturally, was... but I think that's what's changing. I agree. I also think that you can apply a masculine or feminine lens to anything and both lenses always have merit because let's mm -hmm. take the example of forgiveness and take that through a masculine or feminine lens. And let's talk about for forgiveness of self, you know, of a, of a circumstance, a situation, an action, a reaction, whatever it might be. If we take a masculine, let's start with the feminine lens. You'd think forgiveness sounds like a feminine concept, maybe just by a quick, yeah, it's vengeance sounds like a masculine concept. Right. But actually, if you apply femininity to the process of forgiveness, let's say forgiving yourself in your example, yes, absolutely. If you can tap into the feminine in softness and empathy and understanding and patience, completely useful, relevant. But actually, masculinity and forgiveness is also incredibly powerful because if you're applying that type of approach, you need some self-assuredness, not to say femini femininity isn't self-assured, but you need some assertiveness or directness or strength, though there's a lot of strength in femininity, to be purposeful and say, this is what it's going to happen. This is what I think. This is what I believe. And we're going to move forwards. And so having both of those spectrums in your toolkit or at your disposal in your conscious understanding is back to my point right at the start of the podcast about it being powerful and about mm. it giving you such a propulsion to handle any situation and not tying your identity or your self-worth or the way you present to a masculine or a feminine construct and certainly not your sexuality because it becomes even more right. i think loaded in in society um yeah well, we, we make all those parallels right like so if i am straight male uh i want to culturally historically 
present in a way that's going to represent those ideals to the women that I'm interested in. I think what's changing now is how we perceive attractiveness, which is one of the reasons that there's this whole movement of it, right? It used to be, you know, your attractive male looked one way. Yeah. And your attractive female looked one way. And mm. now we are in a place where you may appreciate women that look like this or that. And those women exist, but we're no longer pushing all women into that category, nor are we pushing all men into the category that says, in order to be an attractive male, you need to have broad shoulders, you need to be mm. handsome, you need to be look like this. And that means dressing like this. You can't paint your fingernails. You can't, you know, wear a pearl necklace, right? You can't have earrings. Uh, if you do those things, now you're, you're sending a signal out to the world for a different type of person. So all of our self, all of the ways that we expressed ourselves, like visually or audibly, were designed to attract someone. Mm. And now I think the why is changing the, the reason that we're expressing ourselves is for our own satisfaction exactly. and seeing who we attract and realizing that who we attract when we are just very, very internally self-expressed are like way better for us than the people that we thought we wanted. Yeah, because it comes, it's a really great point. And, you know, even taking a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective around gender fluidity, around trans, I would argue that it's exactly your point. If you are presenting yourself in a way based on conditional self-worth or extrinsic factors to drive your self-worth, like men should, women should, my job should, I should, you are much less attractive to whoever it is you're trying to attract than if you do the opposite, which is build your own intrinsic self-worth, not conditional, but unconditional self-worth within yourself, which takes a long time and, you mm -hmm. know, it's still a work in progress for me. But to your point, you will then present energetically in a way that we can't see, touch, smell, but we can feel and I think that's really an incredible law of attraction that I've felt even in the past five years of my life, if we're starting to talk about dating and, and attraction, even maybe even from a friendship sense, right? The, the kind of friends that I find naturally come into my circle or my sphere is because I'm not doing this for anybody but myself, but my own identity. Now, that's not to say I don't care what other people think or I'm reached nirvana or I don't have ego. It's just to say that it's much more sustainable and it's based on our previous point around continually trying to access authentic connection and authentic self-expression. And, you know, maybe that means for some people X, Y, Z and for other people, ABC, but guess what? That X, Y, Z is going to be someone's absolute preference and they'll find it incredibly attractive. And that's great. Right. Because it and encourages that's authentic connection. Go, go, go be that person. And exactly. go, go find the person that is, is going to work with you. But that wasn't what culture was before. 
you know, mm. culture was, this is what you're supposed to be. I mean, when I was raised, and through no real fault of my parents, mm. you know, they just, but the idea of understanding who you are and getting to know yourself had way more to do with let's figure out all the things because I'm a, I'm a male. Let's figure out all the things that are masculine that are naturally occurring to you. Hmm. Let's work on those, make them bigger. Yeah. Now let's take a look at the things that are feminine about you. Let's minimize those to the most degree possible because those are weaknesses. I feel like that was exactly how we describe strengths and weaknesses, at least from where I grew up. Strengths from a male point of view, strengths were masculine, yeah, feminine, right? Versus, you know, if you were a girl, it was, hey, look at your creative, look at your soft, look at this, highlight all the femininity, right? Wait, you like sports? Um, you like cars? Okay, that's, we need to minimize that because dudes don't, you're not going to find a partner. And that was the only objective to life. Everything revolved around that. Finding and it was a partner. amplified by popular culture, films, sure. the wet toys for children, the way we dress, every narrative that was in our sphere was consciously or subconsciously reinforcing what that should be and which bucket to fit into. Mm-hmm. And, but there were only, there were really only two buckets that, that people, <laughs> you know, could fit into. It was the male or the female. And that was, and I think, you know, to your point with looking at the wide variety of spectrum of natural inclination towards the masculine or the feminine, regardless of gender is really the why behind gender fluidity and it's being initially understood and self-expressed through, you know, if I am a very feminine male, that self-expression and manifestation from a cultural point of view is coming in like, maybe I wear dresses, or maybe I do this, or maybe I do that. In the end, I, I, I think none of that is going to be required. And, you know, you could have a flannel shirt wearing cowboy boot sporting hyper feminine male who is also straight and very comfortable with that i think mm. you know so much of so much of the way that we we dressed and presented ourselves based on our our feminine and our masculine was simply because of partnering yeah you know, and it intrinsically linked to your point to sexuality which is linked to partnering. So it was just a very difficult thing for our generation and those slightly above us and slightly below us and mm -hmm. definitely very below us are still untangling and are still navigating. You know, if now at a primary school or a kindergarten or a early grade school or whatever the term might be, you know, on a form where you select gender, not sexuality, obviously, or any other kind of parameter, but even gender, you know, there's more than two options now. Mm -hmm. And that's going into the gender place, right? That's not even, that's ignoring masculinity, femininity, 
what you should look like, what you should be, sex is about identity. And I think the interplay between all three, four of these aspects is just going to continue to expand and expand and expand until my hope is that it doesn't become a focus or a topic or an obsession, which it feels like it is a little bit at the moment, but it just becomes moot. Mm -hmm. It's like you're a person. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, I, I agree. Because <laughs> uh, at I the think, moment, it's yeah. very, it can be very um, over-explained and over-prescribed. Like I'm still playing catch-up all the time, you know, and I'm somebody who's an ally and tries to be as inclusive as I can in my life. Um, but where I'm going is I, I hope, I don't know when, but I hope that we get to a place where it's just so completely, I know it's like what colour socks are you wearing? Why do I need to put that on a form? Like mm -hmm. they're just socks that I like. It's the same sort right. of expression. Like, how do you behave? How do you act? What do you identify as a person? <laughs> well, like speaking of forms, right? Uh, oftentimes in, in many government forms, they ask you your marital status. And there's lots of choices. There's single, married, divorced. Isn't that single? Why do they need and to know that? Divorce is a weird one, isn't it? I never understood it's a that. Weird, one. It's a weird one. Whether and 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 it's like shame I on have, you. I you have, are yeah, exactly. Like, I have in the past <laughs> selected divorced, but I think going forward in the future for me, I'm just gonna select single if that's my case. I I, I only select single, and I too am divorced. So right. So I just didn't but, and conversely, what if I've had a partner for ten years? but I'm not married. There's usually not a domestic, domestic a partner. Or domestic, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's just, it's single, divorced, married, unmarried, you know, and... Maybe it's for it's, like financial reasons or demographic reasons, but then that would beg the question, why don't they have de facto? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't or, make sense. Or like, what, why, why is that something that is still part of our our cultural understanding of who a person is mm. um yeah, if, good even point. from Why like a census required right yeah what what value is that really adding mm. to to the understanding of who that person is just because at some point they signed a government form that said we're going to hang out together. And then they decided to sign another government form that says like, we really would like to stop hanging out together. Pat <laughs> uh, enough. Uh, good times over. Um, you know, and that, you know, it's, it's just so silly. Like people always ask if I would ever consider getting married again. And, and again, that even that word that, and that question is often, what are they ask, actually asking? What, yeah, what's, what's the, the, the true name? Right. And my answer is absolutely not. And that is not me saying I have no emotional interest in a long-term partnership. I have no value in a long-term partnership. I just will never, ever be in a situation again where I have to spend a lot of money and for the privilege of asking a judge if I cannot see this person anymore. That's just 
really dumb. I've had long-term relationships that far outlasted my marriage in a much healthier mm. way that ended with a decision between the only two people that it mattered to. <laughs> and it yeah. was free. <laughs> yeah. Right? You just come together, someone be like, I think this is, you know, and it doesn't make it easy, right? I, it's quippy, but right, there's still a lot of pain and sadness involved into that, some of those mm. separations. But at the end of the day, it was just about our choice. You know, you didn't have to hire intermediaries to the, it's just, there's just no value in my world to marriage culturally. Anymore. I mean, I think the Nordic countries are more progressive on this than say North America, Australia, mm -hmm. some of Europe, uh, Western Europe in that, for example, in Sweden, more, more people are not getting married by a factor of like the statistics, something like 70 or 80% than are, but to your point, they have children, they live together long-term, potentially they're monogamous. I don't know, but right. it, it just seems like a hangover from the state and the government and to your point, maybe 10 minutes previously from culture, because it well, was the aim of coupling to be married well because women had no function or or value or purpose from a capitalistic sense up until yeah. super recently so mm -hmm. if you were a woman you could be a teacher or whore or get married and that's mm -hmm. how you survived in the world and it's just the way it was it's not it's not yeah. right i'm not advocating for that obviously but yeah. like yeah. that's that is what it was and the advent of divorce was for the wealthy because we invented rules like alimony, which almost always went one direction because that's mm. the way our culture was set up. And the, mm. the whole concept there, they were basically, you were basically just saying, Hey, um, I know I made some promises to you, to your dad about financially <laughs> supporting you. And your dad was super stoked to get you out of the house and was happy about all that. But, I would like to spend less time with you and I would really like to have sex with this person. And the law and the courts said, okay, well, if you're going to do that, you have to have enough money to honor your financial obligations to the first person that you said mm -hmm. you would support the rest of your life and to mm -hmm. her father. And, um, yeah, then you can go off and do whatever the fuck you want, right? Mm. Then you're free. Go do what you want, but you have to maintain your financial obligations at best because that's all marriage was about. Yeah. Right? The financial obligation from a, a man who had the ability to earn income to then provide for a woman who did not. Yeah. I have seen some progression in that. Not that I'm an expert in family law. I have seen some progression in that in a number of countries, Australia, for example, where I got divorced in that there was no, unless there's children involved, then naturally that's a whole different situation. Very but different. if there's no children involved, there is no requirement to have any financial settlement of any nature unless one party disagrees with that. So what I'm going is you can basically just get divorced and not have anything financial implicated unless somebody 
feels there's an injustice, lawyers up and comes after you. Whereas I mm -hmm. believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe in the US, you have to go through that process no matter what. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you can avoid it with a prenup, which I had. Right, right. Uh, so you can avoid but some other of than that. that. You have to go through it, right? Yeah, but even then, yeah. I, there was still a, a very expensive and lengthy process with a prenup that was required because yeah, of yeah. Th there's there is a, an opportunity for usually the less wealthy man or woman, mm -hmm. less mm -hmm. wealthy spouse to take an opportunity to to get a windfall. Yeah. Right. That, that, that always exists, um, in the United States. I would love if uh, there would be, I'm not sure if there is, there probably is, but thinking out loud, the thing I think is nice about marriage is the gesture and the fact that it gives a reason for all of your friends and family. It's pretty much the only time oh. your friends and family will ever care about coming together as one is for a wedding. But what I like the concept of is having, I would get married. I, again. I love, no, no. But I love the concept of ceremony is where I'm going. That's what I mean. I would go yeah. through that again, potentially. Yeah, yeah, That's what I mean. If I yeah, met somebody and it was like, wow, this is great. I would get married again. I'd have a party. Uh, yeah. I think my friends would Just be less contractually. Yeah. Yeah. Less keen to buy me shit, <laughs> uh, which is fine. I didn't, you know, um, but, you know, yes, have a party, have a celebration, celebrate your, your relationship and be like, Hey, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna try and make a partnership experience out of this. Absolutely. I would definitely still do that. Yeah, me too. Just, I'm just, I'm going to skip the part where I stood in front of a freaky judge in the Beverly Hills courthouse, who, <laughs> you know, said weird words and we're like, okay. And then we left and then we went and had a ceremony in the backyard. I would go do that hundred percent the backyard, yeah. the, the judge part. And it's so easy to get married. Like it, marriage is really like a union. Like, and I mean this in the sense of like a, a, a work union or like a labor mm. union, right? They, they basically wrote out these laws and these steps and these things. And if you don't have a, you know, a schedule or a prenup, right? If you, if you're not working above where the union already sets and reevaluate your rules, then you're subject to the union rules when you want to exit that. And that's there to protect people from abuse and being taken advantage of. But, you know, all of that, and they've tried to adjust those rules to make it fair for, you know, men and women. But honestly, it's, it's just, they just need to get rid of the rules. And, mm. you know, the, they've made it tax advantageous to get married. Mm. And that's a super big manipulation on the part of the government to, that's, that's to a encourage real, that. That's a real red flag for me. I don't understand why they why that is a why should there be a tax benefit whether you sign a piece of paper and you're together or versus when you're just together. Though well, there is still some provisions if you've had a long term relationship and you can have joint bills or a joint financial. I think that still gives you some benefit. At least I don't know the US yeah. tax system. I mean, you can get a domestic partnership, you know, right. you can get a civil union, um, you know, even to the point where in many states, I think California included, I think it's seven years and not a lawyer, but like, uh, if you live together for seven years, a person could claim, yeah, uh, I've heard that. marriage. Yeah. And so 
which is to prevent but the, it's like why is that that is specifically there to prevent a man from meeting a woman in her 20s and you could be in your 20s dating her for 10 years never getting married and then being like we're done but then again when those rules were written her only yeah. value was her ability to create children and provide a home because she had no yeah, value in the workplace. Completely imbalanced because it's just com right and completely irrelevant. Yet we're still yeah. like, oh, well, there's that. That's it's just it's crazy, and so you know our culture and our laws, which were based on that culture, what we thought was right, was based on something that just has no applicability today. And so I think that's think what we're seeing in like Gen Z. They're like, this is weird. That's what I was going to go. Do you sense. think Gen Z and potentially, you know, I I still consider myself fairly young. <laughs> I'm turning 35 next month. But do you think that I guess I'll say the royal our generation and the one before, once we're in decision making roles, be it you know government policy, high court judge, whatever the case may be. Do you feel like these things are going to change and be unwritten and ruled back? Because I think there's a very low chance, even with people with progressive mindsets, it's so ingrained so deeply in religion, in culture, in all sorts of aspects that even if, you know, Gen Z and Alpha, who I would argue, yes, uh, are much more progressive and don't see the value in relationship that is a marriage contract, um, do you think it can be unwound and do you think this stuff can can progress or do you think it's just too entrenched? I think it will unwind at some point, uh, whether okay. it unwinds the next 10 years, no, yeah. I think maybe not. But, you know, especially as the generations progress, um, one of the things I think AI is going to do is require uh, us to react and respond faster. And I think that's going to have a rollover effect, right? Part of, at least in the United States, the value of our government is the fact that it moves very slowly. So somebody like Trump, for example, couldn't completely destabilize the United States in four years. It's just not possible. There are too many checks and balances. The converse side is you get somebody amazing and great that's really doing a lot of good things. There's a lot of checks and balances there, too, to try and maintain and prevent positive prog progression. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. But, you know, I think that so much of where we're at in our society is at this real unique precipice of change, right? I mean, that's part of the reason that I've wanted to do this, this whole podcast experience, and, and hopefully continue to be able to do it, is because I want to be a voice of reason and positivity that isn't so progressive that I am as unreasonable as you know, the people, the, the hardcore evangelical Christians that, you know, think gay people are, are the devil and that bars are, you know, evil places or something, right? So, I mean, I think the failure of progressive politics at this point is twofold. One, the assumption that because I have made a different choice than the people before me, that I have made all the choices, right? And the failure to have empathy for those who haven't changed before I did, mm. right? And suddenly we 
we on the progressive side look at the the status quo side and, and we start to demonize them or call them evil when you know 25 years ago uh i probably thought the same right because that's mm-hmm. what i was taught and i've just had a privilege of experience and the benefit of intellect in order to process things differently and come to different conclusions on my own and trust myself and have the ability to be able to trust myself i don't need you know this whole community of supporters uh personally around me to survive i'm good on my own you know what i mean so if like if i piss off a family i don't give a shit right i don't need my family to survive both emotionally or not i have a different type of family that i think comes in the terms of friends and and other experiences so i need people but you know i'm not limited to just the people that i grew up around and and Mm. i acknowledge a lot of people are so you can't you can't just tell everybody to go fuck off because then you cut off your entire social network you cut off your entire world you know you're the weird one and and you still live there (laughs) you know what are you going to do so their progression is reasonably slower and i think we in the progressive side sometimes don't have a lot of empathy for that and um you know that that's where we we get conflict it's easy to it's easy for me to see where the conflict is from the right because i'm on the outside looking in it's harder to see the conflict from the left because people are in it and they Mm -hmm. they 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 view their point of view as correct and even if it is it's not the last time it's going to be correct Right. Or, you know what I mean? Like, it, eventually you're going to be wrong. You know, all the people on the boomer side were, you know, the Woodstock generation. And now they're, you know, the crazy conservatives, uh, you know, that are running the United States government, at least. And, you know, these guys were all hanging out around Woodstock and then partying and, and you know, and now they're crony conservatives. The same thing could happen if you stop developing and stop having empathy for the next phase of people coming in. Because at some point, we're going to have to acknowledge that the way we think right now, Mm -hmm. in 20 years, may be bigoted. Yeah. We just can't see it. We're not trying to be, but we can't see it. I think the difference between that example and the example of people who are in your example in power now, but went to Woodstock is I'd like to think at least the circle I surround myself with is that the people now say our age in this 20 year age band, if they're doing work on themselves and they're understanding principles of psychology <laughs> and trauma and understanding you know, all that life has to offer you. If you just look, I'd like to think that even though my views in 20 years will not be as whatever the word might be progressive, aware, learned as those who come before me, I'd like to feel like I have the self-awareness and capacity at least to listen, to understand and to learn. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel because masculinity and femininity were so dichotomized, because it was weak to be 
sad or weak to be vulnerable because of the culture in the way that it was in the Western world when these people were growing up, they simply don't have the capacity to understand what's coming before. And, you know, there's a joke that if Donald Trump took psilocybin, took magic mushrooms, which is, I know, a, a topic that we both enjoy talking about, he would be a totally different guy. But I think that's not true because okay, yes, he could use it to bypass some of his stuff that he's got going on. But in fact, you know, that particular example is just, it's a capacity issue. It's a, it's an egoic block in that example. It's a, you know, bunch of lifetime trauma that's never been unpacked. Fine. But I'd like to think when you and I, and not that we're amazing, but when our ilk are older, yeah, we'll be old fuddy duddies, boomers who don't understand you know, the latest TikTok or whatever it might be, no cap, whatever, or it, might bullshit, be. whatever yeah. it might be, yeah. I still would love to learn and love to understand. And maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe I'll just be crusty and old and tell everyone to fuck off. I don't know, but that's what I'd like to at least think that some of this um, difficulty and growth that I've been forcing myself to go through that I now do happily, no, no longer forcefully, will allow me to be more receptive in the future. But I think the big difference, and I would say this um, with more confidence than whether or not I'll be old and crusty or, or whatever. <laughs> I do think, because that, that you're, you're right, I don't know. But I do think that regardless of my point of view and my willingness to adapt and to change and to learn, there may, you're right, you may come a point where I'm like, I just don't give a fuck anymore. Mm. I, I'm, I don't want to learn. Like, I'm good. Like, mm. things are still operating. I have my food. Mm. Like, I don't care. Mm. And I'm not interested. Mm. And that's mm. fine. The difference is, I'm not going to try and run the country yeah. or control those circumstances because I am threatened by changing culture. Yeah, that is actually not threatening. I mean, that's that's the that's the wild thing, right? From a religious point of view, in the states, you know, it's the progressive left is not saying we should ban religion. No one is, no one reasonable is saying that, right? Or that we should tell the religious people that they're required to do this. It's just not. It's just not happening. Uh, outside of devaluing human beings and or you know the elimination of certain inalienable human rights no one's saying you can't you can't practice christianity in the united states what they're saying is we're we're not interested in practicing christianity and because they're so insecure in the faith that they actually have not the faith that they pretend to have or the faith that they project that they have the faith that's really there they're so insecure that they can't handle someone else being a good person, being a happy person, being a loving person, having loving relationships that also reject this notion that their, their belief structure, their religion, their point of view is correct and the only way to live. Because that is how they've evaluated it for so long it was like hey are you a christian i'm a christian oh yeah you're a christian cool you're a good person period that was the that was the notion 
oh, you're a Jewish person? Well, you're kind of like this. Maybe still a good person, right? You're a Muslim, you're a bad person. And that was their points of view. That's how they were to categorize people. So suddenly, that's not at all true. And it's challenging their, their belief structure. It's challenging how they have evaluated their entire life's, lives. And when you find out that the way you've been living your life has really not been accurate, true, or helpful, mm. that sucks when you're 60 because you don't get to do it again. Yeah. I, I wonder, though, to my previous point, like when all these people die, and I'm not saying I want them to die, when they all die of I natural understand. causes and happily, hopefully, what is this new guard? You know, is the new guard like the sons, daughters, whatever, replicants of who we've got now? Because po the problem with politics, and I'm, I'm not American, but I understand it at a basic level, but even in, in Australia, is it does not attract the type of, or caliber of individual that it needs to or should for the positions that it appoints. So historically, you are, you're correct. yeah, at least in, in my view, I hope that there is a new progressive and I use that term on purpose. I mean, progressive is in open-minded and empathetic and able to listen and understand group of people are coming through who can help change culture for the better, but because of the fact that politics is so corrupt, is so poorly regarded, at least in a lot of Western situations. I've lived in the United Kingdom, I've lived in Australia, I've lived in the US, and now I live in Portugal. But I, I hope that there is some new blood coming through that actually is open to all the things we've been talking about and is able to listen and learn and, and fly a flag of acceptance and uh, forward momentum. <laughs> I think so. I, I, I think that's required for us to survive as a species, to be honest. Mm, I mean, I agree. I, I hope I mean, so at, too, but <laughs> I don't know that we'll have a lot of options from a survivability point we don't, of view. We also don't have you, a lot of time. There's only one more wave <laughs> before <laughs> we're all pretty much out of here. Sayonara. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're not <laughs> wrong. I mean, I, I look at the, the progression of tech and AI and, you know, the processor power. And I think that you, know, you asked who the God is going to be. I, I think we're it and we're creating in our own image, a, sentient creature eventually uh whether that happens in five years or a hundred you know i think mm. it's it's almost an inevitability at this point um i, th I think singularity to your point singularity which is obviously where artificial i, I worked in ai actually for a number of yeah. years and you know i saw a lot of pretty amazing deep learning models and random forests and LLM and all sorts of really cool shit and climate change will be here before singularity. Climate change is here. What I mean is climate destruction from a mathematical probability perspective, it's more advanced than artificial intelligence is. So I guess 
it's like, can we use artificial intelligence to slow that down, to accelerate technological advances so that we do not all burn to a crisp? Maybe, hopefully. And if we can, then can we avoid singularity by applying ethical frameworks and oversight and controls and checks and balances to the development and use more than the development, although both of artificial intelligence because see how do you define singularity sorry what's your definition what's your definition of singularity just to have context for that word because it's a it's a new word so it could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people Uh not that it doesn't have yeah technological singularity as i as i understand it um is sort of a hypothetical future point in time where technological growth growth becomes so ubiquitous and uncontrollable and irreversible. So there's no control Z if you're a Mm -hmm. a Microsoft Office person, that it basically results in unforeseeable negative changes to human civilization. And a lot of the time when people talk about technological singularity, the main thing that comes to mind is artificial intelligence because it's it's hugely popularized. You know, we've got Mr. Gates talking about it. We've got Zucker talking about it. Um, potentially, there'd be other technological advances that are not just artificial intelligence that exacerbate that singularity. You know, it might be um, processing power, quantum computing. It might be other things. But really, like the main thing at the moment that I hear about is that it's essentially like the Terminator movie, right? not that. Yeah, I would agree with you that I think that's a little bit further out. I think, though, that the likelihood that we will allow and use computer models and AI, essentially, to make decisions, like if AI is going to help us with this climate problem that we're mm-hmm. very late on, it, it's going to take some of our, our decision-making, some of our economy away. And that is a, right now we're at a hundred percent and computers are completely subservient to our interests, needs, demands, and we can just turn them off if they start pissing us off. We're eventually, and I think probably sooner than later, if you want to, if you want to see how it's working in the military, just Google Skyborg, that'll freak you out, (laughs) uh, from the Air Force program that's using AI planes to assist like the new uh, stealth. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that's wild. But like, let's say we take that from a to a governmental point of view and um, like a power generation. And we have different ways to generate power. And we give that model to an AI in order to how to generate power in a way that reduces slash eliminates our negative effect on the environment. But that requires, that says that we can only produce you know, a fictional unit measurement of, say, 100 units of energy. So now we have an AI model that is determining that this number of people only get 100 units of energy. So you don't have the freedom to have more than that. And now your your lives are limited based on the energy consumption that you were allotted. 
and that changes everything super fast. That's where I think for me, when I see, when I think of that kind of singularity, right, that kind of experience, I think that's very close in our future where there is an internet link that allows for mass control and, and the, the power of that control. I mean, most cars are going to be linked to the internet within the next 15 years. The, the amount of control that that could happen and from a human point of view, where we could just freeze all the cars, right? So what happens when those programs are built in to react faster than the humans can react? And, you know, things, weird things start happening. Um, so I think you're right. I, I don't know that we'll create like a consciousness anytime soon, but losing control of our yeah. destiny, of our power grids, you know, of our water sources, of our war machines. I, I don't know. I think that's well potentially right around the corner. I think what you're talking about is the ethical application of AI. And there's a um, document called the Oxford Munich Code of Data Science. And in that document, they've tried to write out how to ethically use and apply AI, which is a pretty contentious sentence in itself. But what's more interesting or important than that is the way that AI is developed is by engineers, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Data scientists and others. And they have their own bias in the way that they develop these models and train these models and learn. So there's and bias what they want in that. them to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's obviously bias into, to your point in how this is applied or used in a societal or human context. So is it used to face facial scan everybody and get all their information and watch them like Big Brother? Sure. If we want to use it like that, that's how. But AI at the moment, in my understanding of it, is it doesn't have any intention. It only has the ability to do what has been coded to do. And it learns, of course, it learns how to do mm -hmm. it better. It learns how to do it more efficiently. It learns other ways of doing it. I think, you know, this evil intent baked into technology is completely not happening. But if there are no checks, controls or balances or consideration of the ethical application of these tools, then your point's 100%, 110% going to happen. I put my money on it, that it will be used to our previous point if we have regressive politicians or we even just autocratic states. Ones. Like the, 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 the problem of like the secondary consequence, right? We, we, mm. we, we often are reacting to experiences culturally and, yeah. you know, we, we can make a, a set of rules under statements or laws, alimony to go back to marriage was, was a great idea, right? It was this thing where it was like, Hey, we need to protect these women from mm. these, from a man just inadvertently deciding she's poor now right? mm. and he can't just kick her out of his house and yeah, be because like, she was doing looking after children she was looking after the home she deserves rights in that context and that was an ethical construct yes. at the time and it had value and it was came from yeah. probably a very progressive place the conservatives yeah. in that time were kind of like this sucks i gotta pay for this yeah. you know what i mean yeah. like yeah. and, and 
now it's now it's it's irrelevant so it's as, as the world starts to move faster and faster and faster you know whether or not human beings actually have the data mechanisms to keep up with how yeah, fast yeah. i think ai is going to be changing things yeah um the other thing so is that, also you know, like a single point of failure factor so like a lot of these models are so complicated and so sophisticated i used to work with a whole team of data scientists and they had key person risk in the business because if one of these individuals got hit by a bus god forbid guess what nobody else understood the model it's too sophisticated <laughs> it's too advanced there's it's very difficult to back solve a machine learning model right it's it's not something that you can just kind of look under the hood and go oh yeah that's one of those these things are trained on often billions of data sets they often have learning on top of learning on top of learning on top of learning it's it's not something that's easily dissected and so to your point right if it's bob or sally who's the only person who understands the power grid and he or she isn't doing so good we're going to have a problem so i think there is a huge human fallacy in something or human weakness in something that fundamentally doesn't have weakness right technology is is exactly what it's meant to be and it will always do that all the time to specification and to performances people don't we suck we fuck up we have a bad day you know there's there's so much risk um baked into the equation in that there's such a talent and skill shortage in this area and yeah it's a i don't know i i feel like um the next craze after generative AI, which is the current craze, which is mm -hmm. around, you know, chat GPT and right. Dolly and all of these things. But there's so many different types of AI that have so many applications across every single industry, across every single part of the world. And only now the, the focus is on it because the consumer can access these, these tools. Well, and it's your point culturally about it's going to change how we earn income. Yeah. How, which is our capitalistic function. That's how Education. we survive education right. having to pay for a degree you know that's now do i need to i'm not sure really I moot right because the value of a degree maybe you go back to goodwill hunting right where he's in that bar and he's talking to the guy mm -hmm. who's like an arrogant ass and and he's hitting on a girl and then here comes matt damon's character who knows everything about everything for all the time and you know and he's like you know it's just gonna be really really stupid is when you wake up and you're 30 and you realize you paid you know, $250,000 for an education you could have gotten with a dollar and 50 cents late fees at the library. And his retort, the arrogant guy, his retort is, but I'll have a degree. And culturally that mattered, right? Yeah. At that time when it they made that movie, locked. It also unlocked, if you look at the US example, thankfully university is not that expensive in Australia, but I know it is right. in, in it, it also unlocks this whole like, oh, I went to an Ivy League school or I can now apply for this job or I have a network of, um, you know, old boys that can get me a job, you know, all this sort of right. garbage. So the universities in the United States became a, a capitalistic endeavor that then hid behind altruistic education and Harvard education is good, but it's not so much better than others. The reason mm. it's more expensive is because of their brand, right? They, yeah. they, they went into brand marketing and yeah. it was just an old college. So they have the history of being one of the only 
good colleges for a long time. So if you hmm. went to any kind of college, you went probably to Harvard 100 years ago. Hmm. But now, as all these other institutions have popped up, they've they branded themselves as something that was elite. And when you have that piece of paper that says, I went here, you are now part of that brand and therefore earning potentially a higher income. But a lot of that's going away. Tech kind of got rid of that to a certain extent too. And the idea, and I think the generation that got truly fucked were the millennials. Um, I was a little bit ahead of that. And also I avoided that because I went to the Naval Academy, which is free institution. Um, yeah. And probably at the level of Harvard. So, you know, I, I, I had a $400,000 scholarship that everybody from Annapolis or the mother military schools automatically get. So I was very lucky in that. So I avoided that. And most of my age group peers didn't. And the millennials definitely didn't. And when the path out of high school was graduate from high school, go to a good college, and that will deliver you a life. That was very attractive and supply and demand, right? As less and less people or more and more people as the population expanded and the college number of colleges, Harvard hasn't gotten a ton bigger, right? So supply and demand happens and you have a bunch of people that are looking for this laddered life of high school, college, and then became a master's degree, became really important, you know, it, just to get a job. And now people are four or five, six hundred thousand dollars in debt and they don't know what to do with themselves. I can't imagine if I were six, if I would have been $400,000 in debt at 21, instead of, I wouldn't have been able to buy my first houses. I wouldn't have been able to set my whole life up the way I did. Everything was delivered from that. And most people are hamstrung by the amount of debt they went into to just enter the game of potentially no. not having to be a tradesman. You know, that's really where the US has failed and became hyper-capitalist because people from every other country look at the US and go, what the hell is going on there with education? Like, right. you can get an incredible education in so many countries outside of the United States and it's, like, sometimes not even a tenth of the cost. So I really don't understand how people in that environment ever get out of debt in their whole life because that is an well, enormous amount of money. That's the That's the... But, you know, that's the big thing with, you know, our Supreme Court at the moment and Biden trying to offer debt forgiveness and or uh, student loan forgiveness attempted to do it. Supreme Court, which is six to three conservative and you know, three of those dudes were nominated by Trump. Mm -hmm. Bananas, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, voted against it and said you couldn't do that. But again, that is a it's, this is not legal questions. These are cultural questions. These are questions that people are afraid of losing the, the gatekeeping that they had through the collegiate experience. But the problem is that gate's wide open anyway. There is no gatekeeping. There used to be. And then yeah. we, we got rid of it, some for good reason. But mm -hmm. the way our society is set up between supply and demand, it, it, it made the, the cost go insane. You know, I think any the idea future... that... Sorry, go on. No. And then you start looking at how else colleges make money. Like, what is their function and purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And you start looking at athletes and all that sort of nonsense. 
about the way that schools promote their 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 sports that was never what sports were about sports were mm -hmm. in college should have been about the lessons you learn from being on a, a team uh and and playing something right it, you know, the, the idea and i think it's great the ncaa decision to let college athletes earn money from sponsorships and stuff because some of them are making millions of dollars from that that's appropriate but again i think that's just headed furthered into the wrong direction right like the idea that we're we're profiting so much we've created situations where our education institutions are making choices not about hey does this is this good for education that's never the question you ask why is it so fucked up because the only question they're asking is how much money can we make from yeah. this decision what this yeah. what choice can we make that is going to make us the most money if it's choice a and that is shit for the students they are going to make choice a yeah i mean i'm fascinated by the trajectory and future of education as a whole and i mean you know from kindergarten all the way to whatever you call it in the US, all the way to um, postgraduate studies, because I don't know about you, but if I reflect on my own education and I was fortunate to be able, you know, in a privileged place to be able to be educated, I'll say, and go to, a, you know, university and get a master's degree and all of that. I just really didn't learn that much until I started working and the way that I learned the most important things during that time were not at school. It was like mm -hmm. in my life, in my interactions with human beings in expressing and creating things in traveling, which I was fortunate to be able to do. I just, you know, there's all this, there's these, um, I'm not an expert on the topic by any means, but there's a number of schools. There's even one in Topanga Valley in Los Angeles, but I, there's a, lots of these different schools popping up all over the place that unfortunately are typically reserved for the wealthy. And these schools are teaching a completely opposite method mm -hmm. of what we're used to of education. And they really bring in tenets of play, identity, learning, creating. Now they still obviously learn to Critical read thinking. and write and do math, but Critical thinking is a big one, right? Um, problem solving, even problem solving. Mm -hmm. Like there was never a problem solving class. So I, work, I worked for a decade in management consulting, which is problem solving, but just for adults in, in business. And I learned so much in my internship alone about how do you approach a problem with a framework? How do you draw things out and mm -hmm. create hypotheses and dissect information? Like even that alone was not taught to me. Okay. Maybe a little bit in my master's degree, you know, it was, it was a good degree, but really the application of that only came when I hit the workplace. And of course, in my personal life. So I'd be really fascinated to see what the curriculum is for children. Okay. We need to learn to do math, read, write history. That's not going to go away. Right. But even how do they learn that now with technology? Right. I, I saw a really sad video of, you know, children trying to swipe the air when they miss their iPads. They just had a tick that they were so used to swiping the air. I mean, it, it's really technology is creating that, a very it's strange. Awful. It's awful, yeah. a really yeah. strange um, situation now. But yeah, I would love to see what's going to happen in that place because I think there's some great tenants there around 
play and problem solving. See, I think the mistake that some people make just to, to tip in on that swiping experience. Oh yeah. So there's two, there's two conclusions, right. That I, I can see immediately that are very different. The first one being technology is bad and look what we're doing and it's fucking up kids. Right. And now they're like swiping in the air. Holy shit. This is terrible. <laughs> the, and, and the problem with that is that tends to be the common conclusion, but the solution to that conclusion is to stop with technology. And we're not going to do that for all the same reasons yeah. that we're not going to get rid of college football in the United States. Yeah. So the other one is being more intentional about the application of that technology yeah. and considering the unintended secondary consequences, you know, uh, yeah. in tech, the, the um, social dilemma, and, uh, which I think is a great, great film on Netflix. And, you know, it talks about the people that invented the like button on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that social media and the rise of social media has increased you know, teenage girl suicide by like 30% has like done that, you know, all these negative experiences, depression is higher, you know, lack of human connection, right? The, the easy access to dopamine, all the things that we thought were going to be mm. fun and cool and, and make you feel good. Hey man, let's, let's, the guy invented the like button and no way was like, fuck teenage girls, <laughs> right? Like I, I want them all to kill themselves. This is what this is going to do. No, they were like, I think it'd be cool if when you put a picture up, you know, your friends could get this kind of like fun response. The consequence being when you don't get that, you feel terrible, but that they didn't, mm. they didn't necessarily recognize that I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt there. But now we do know for sure that there are all these secondary consequences to tech and that if we just pursue the thing that makes us the most money, the fastest, it is inevitably not going to be the best choice. Like whatever that one is, most money. I mean, and we know that from other experiences, right? That's why we have anti-monopoly laws in the United States. Yeah. That's why we have other regulation in the United States and in other countries where they say like, hey, it's cool if you make money, but you can't make money this way because- yeah that super sucks for society and our, and we're just not quite applying that yet to tech we're saying, right. you know, this is, you can make money, you can start a social network, but you know, you have to consider the, the real consequences and, I mean, and, and maybe that means limiting intentionally. Uh, I think yeah. actually, you know, as much as Elon Musk is a polarizing figure, I think he did that on Twitter, right? I read that where it was, there was on X now, uh, there's a, time limit you can only look at so many new posts in a day or something like that, I didn't know that. and i mean you can do that on your iphone manually if you want to yeah, set but it he's up he's doing it from a corporate point of view wow, i've read that good. don't 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 quote i've read that somewhere you know everything real i have not verified in snopes and yep. like asked elon himself if this is all for <laughs> sure happening and x isn't isn't a social media platform i i frequent um at least not personally uh, so that's interesting. And that's counter to the financial model that says yeah. we want your eyeballs on our app as much as possible, as long as possible, which we recognize that like doom scrolling is 
much, much longer than kitten scrolling, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so it's, these are the choices we're gonna have to make. So, you know, and, and in context, masculine and femininity, understanding which ones have the most value to society. I think I would argue masculinity tends to move towards like logic and would the masculine choice is to make as much money as possible as fast as possible with the least amount of regulation to so that I can do whatever the fuck I want. And the femininity side is like, well, let's consider, you know, how this is affecting the people that are using our product. And we used to have that, right? To use a product in the United States, you know, if I bought, you know, a vacuum cleaner in the U.S., like it had to be shown to be safe, you know, and it wasn't going to murder my cat because it mm. the suction was so strong, you know, and it rips the cat. You, you, do you know what I mean? Or like if I bought a, a, a baby diaper or I bought a baby crib. There are, there are ways that we've said, okay, yeah, you can make money selling a crib, but you have to make sure that the baby using the crib isn't going to like decapitate itself. Mm. It's because of the, it the pace of technological innovation is too fast for regulation. And also there's too many unknowns in psychology to understand how do humans respond? Because a lot of technology taps into our psyche, whereas a vacuum cleaner does not, right? It just sucks mm -hmm. up dust. I guess where I'm going is we as a society have to tap into the feminine more to access that morality and to learn and to see, okay, well, what is this doing? What does it mean? And what are our cultural barriers to what's right and what's wrong? And it's quite clear that a lot of the things you describe are wrong. You know, it doesn't matter which religion, country or whatever you come from, they should be fundamentally wrong and legislated as such. But there's always this lead lag effect, right, of, mm -hmm. of regulation. And the same's happening for AI right now, you know. It's very, very hard. I mean, look at something like cryptocurrency or NFTs or AI yeah. or all these technological innovations. Like the SEC, for example, is only finally, like in the US, finally being able to cobble something together when it's been going on and money laundering has been happening and 15 funding years. terrorism since what 2000 and god knows i know when Nine, it started. 10, when bitcoin yeah. started to you know first began go. yeah so i think what, you, you've got a great Which point it's, I think it started on the dark web yeah right most exactly. of my friends that made the most amount of money in crypto <laughs> is because they were buying drugs on the dark web you know and these aren't bad people but like that's yeah, yeah. where they were buying their their mushrooms and their yeah, cocaine. I bought, a, I bought a pizza with all my Bitcoin. I'm not that guy. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's true though. They'd be like, oh, I had like 200 Bitcoin for the, which equated to like a thousand dollars worth for drugs, and then it was like, I have 2.4 million dollars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, okay. Um, so it's it's but really you you yeah. Yeah, that, that innovation pace and the fact that technology affects us in such a psychological way makes it, it's not product safety. If only it was that easy. Um, and to your point, like there's so much going on in the world. <laughs> we have all these other issues to think about. 
um, it's it's going to be interesting to see the next even next five years. Um, I do I do know that there's more regulation being worked on every day from an AI perspective. Um, so I, I do think that the right some of the right minds are on it from from the little I know, but it really comes down to application, right? If mm-hmm. China wants to use it in a way that doesn't meet a standard or a stat that the European Union, the United States, Australia, Canada, India, whatever have agreed on, it's not worth the paper it's written on. There's no penalty. Um, well, because all those are cross community, right? Like to your point, the safety standards and stuff like that required border control, right? So yeah. if China had no labor laws and just you can send your five-year-old to work and he can be whipped, we in the United States could be like, that's horrible. And we're not going to do that. But what's mm-hmm. happening over there is their own choice. But to your point with like AI, especially the fact that we made no attempt to reduce the use of AI and weapons, that's that changes. Me. Those things come across and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, the internet has no boundaries or borders, really, mm-hmm. you know? So you're, you're very right. Like it, it be, which is part of the globalism that I'm a fan of, but, you know, recognizing that our culture needs to have some sort of stabilization of laws, understanding purpose, you know, what are we doing here? And if we don't figure that out, I think, you know, we're not going to make it. <laughs> we're not going to make it. <laughs> I think we're not going to make it. You know, and I mean, I'm gonna need a I, I just don't want. Yeah, no, no, I, I just don't know if like, I, yeah, I don't know. I was, I was having speaking. I was smoking some weed with a friend of mine on the beach, and we were like, um, "Have you ever considered that this might be really, truly, might be at the height of human civilization? And that this, at this point, there, after this, even if human beings exist, the amount of freedom, autonomy, self-motivated." you know, destiny is like, this is as good, truly as good as it ever could get. Uh, and from here out, it, there, there, there's going to be a requirement of more control from a, a social point of view. And that's going to require less autonomy in your own personal life and your, your, your movement, your, your wealth creation, all of that. And um, I, thought, I think... But- but maybe, I think it, um, might... it might happen. Yeah. Like I was it say, maybe it does make sense. Maybe Elon will create a colony on Mars and he'll invite you and you and I, who knows? I mean, honestly, there, there's a world I could do that. I mean, I don't want to like be one of the first people that crashes into Mars and, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I, I'm such an exploratory human being. I mean, you as well, I, I'm, I'm not at 80 countries, but I'm close to 60. And now I've lived in two different countries and I've always had this like thirst for experience and for more and people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would like, I would think yeah. that if I were in the, the, the Star Trek future, right. Even, even, a, even a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Spock symbols, like even, a, even in a, a more near term, right. It doesn't have to be full Federation, but like, if there were as an option as a career job for me to have been a space explorer, I, 
I, I think I could have been into that, you know, especially yeah. after all this time on Earth. Space movies to, to be like somewhat put off by that. <laughs> What's that? Wait, say I'm washing up like Martian space Hollywood. I don't know if I want to be the first person to show up on a planet and be like, "What's up with this planet? It's not so great, actually." Uh, how are you going to get off? Turns out I can. Yeah, learn to grow some potatoes. Uh, you know, but I would, I'd fly around and you know just see what we can see. You know, um, I mean that part's interesting to me. Yeah, uh, but I, I like people, you know, like I, I like, you know, if they, we found aliens, I would definitely want to go there um, and, and you know, in a non-murdering way and, you know, and go understanding them. Like when I, when I did Everest, that's why people ask, like, oh, you summited? No, like that's, that's, a, that's a different egoic experience. I wanted to meet all the people on the way to Mount Everest. And, you know, Everest is a bit of a, you know, a focus, you know, it's a, it's a thing to do. But to me, it was meeting all the human beings in Namche and Tempelche and these other tiny little villages that live there. Like, this is what cool. their life is like. It's like, what, who are you? You know, and they're people and they're, they're living out their life and their life and experience is so different than mine and my expectations and what's possible for me. It's like, that's what it was fascinating. And that's what I would want to do. I, I would more right. just, you know, be exploratory to a rock just to say, I yeah. went to this there asteroid. Needs to be, for me, it's the same. There needs to be some element of connection. Yeah. And that could be with yeah. an alien or a human being, but <laughs> or an, <laughs> exactly. an animal. Bring your cat. Bring Charlie. Yeah, bring Charlie. <laughs> Speaking of which, we're we're been crushing us for a while i think uh yeah we can probably wrap up this particular conversation i hope it's not the last time we have a conversation on this podcast i know it won't be the last time we have these conversations uh in person but yeah i just think they're really informative it's a it, it introduces ideas to people and that's that's what we're trying to do and to get people to ask who are you and what are the questions that they need to ask to figure that part out and then after you figure out who you are, it's kind of like, you know, teaching a kid to walk. He's got to walk on his own, right? But at this point, our culture, to your point with education, has not taught people how to understand who they are and how they want to interact in the world. And they're, they're following a, a format and a structure that is no longer delivering what it promised, and people are really pissed off. So instead of just being irritated about the delivery of high school, college, meet a girl, get pregnant, get married, get a job, let your kids do the same thing, become grandparents. That life path is not a wrong life path. It's just not the life path for everyone. So how do you figure out if that's the right path for you before you get three kids deep and two ex-wives, right? Yeah. How do you identify that? That's that's what this is about, and it it covers every spectrum from politics to religion to education to AI to sexuality to gender. Like, this is a cultural podcast, right? That's what this is. So here for the you're a great. Thank you so much for uh, for conversing and for adding your your wisdom and your experience and your your both professional and personal life experience. It's uh, 
I think it's hopefully it's it's really cool for people to be able to to try and make their own lives better and to define what better looks like for them first. And I'll leave with one final comment that somebody said to me once that I found very helpful to your point about, you know, going up until a point in your life and then you feel like everything goes wrong and then you're sort of questioning everything. You've got time. Life is not short. Life is the longest thing that you'll ever do. So enjoy it. Thanks, John David. And Jordan, and Jordan fades back and swish. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, man. Cheers. Peace out. Thanks. Not sure if the path of your parents is the path for you? What questions do you begin with? What does self-discovery feel like? My journey of self-discovery has been both my privilege and my tribulation. I have lived life differently than most. I offer educational sessions on how to pursue your path. Links and contacts are in the bios. Thank you for listening to the Sex and Humans podcast. My name is John David Whaler, powered by Riverside FM.